Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. What do the sentencing guidelines say about training? The training hallmark is one area where the sentencing guidelines do give us a good bit of specific information about what's expected for an effective program. At its base, training must be effective, periodic, and practical. So let's break that down. What's effective? Well, it has to work in communicating the company's standards to the broadest possible audience. Often you hear terms like clear, concise, and interesting applied to training that's developed to communicate those standards. Oftentimes, one of the areas that is most overlooked but can be very serious is being clear. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, we were working with an organization putting together a program on conflicts of interest. One of the more interesting things about the conflicts of interest policy at this organization is it specifically allowed for and discussed hiring family members, close friends into the organization. The reason being is that this was a family-owned organization and it would have been impossible to have a conflicts of interest policy that forbid uh, nepotism because the CEO's daughter was a general manager. This is all well-known and open and the conflicts of interest policy took this into account. When we were working with them to put together a program for their general managers, we found out that their off-the-shelf training that discussed conflicts of interest specifically stated that you could not hire family no matter what. Well, this was obviously a oversight and unintended by the organization. And again, this was a well-known policy within the organization, but you did have annual code of conduct training that as a module had a conflicts of interest provision that directly conflicted with what the actual policy of the organization was. This sort of thing happens more frequently than you might imagine, particularly with the proliferation of off-the-shelf training and other training that's standardized. Another scenario that is fairly common, when you have organizations that have been acquired or you have an organization with several separate subsidiaries, you can oftentimes have policies and procedures and other documents that are in direct conflict with each other and with the training that is provided to all the employees. So you have to remember that the communication includes both the training that is required, but also any other written standards and other informal communication that might be out there. So when you're talking about clarity and effectiveness, a lot of it comes down to just being consistent. And you'd be surprised the number of times that inconsistencies crop up. And that creates confusion for the employee and the others that are receiving that information. Another piece of the puzzle on effectiveness is coverage. Who is receiving the training? Does this include remote employees? Does it include management? Does it include board of directors? Because the sentencing guidelines expect that your training does include all of those groups. The guidelines themselves say that the people to be trained include members of the governing authority, so board of directors, high-level personnel, so management and executives, substantial authority personnel, people responsible for the program, the organization's employees, and, as appropriate, the organization's agents. 
So for those of you that have a substantial number of subcontractors or agents and other third parties who do work on behalf of your organization, the sentencing guidelines contemplate that you're going to be training those individuals. I've worked with more than one organization over the last few years that had a substantial population of agents, distributors, or other third parties that, for all intents and purposes to the outside world, often look like they might be part of the overall organization. This is a common structure, or should I say a common set of many different types of structures out there where organizations are often very distributed and are organized in a way that includes a lot of third parties. Today, to have an effective training program, organizations really need to consider who is out there that is representing the organization. And is it appropriate, as the guidelines contemplate, is it appropriate for us to be training those individuals and those organizations that act on our behalf? It's a question that oftentimes organizations don't ask. The second piece of the puzzle is periodic. The guidelines don't define periodic, but periodic is more than once. I am aware of, and I'm sure that many of you have seen organizations that have a fairly decent onboarding process where they do code of conduct training for their employees. But after the onboarding training in many organizations, there is no further training of the employee. Well, that's clearly not periodic. Another thing you need to watch out for, particularly if you're a government contractor, is oftentimes training is specifically discussed in the contract. And you might be certifying to the fact that you are training periodically on your code of conduct or other standards. So you need to know what you've agreed to do under your contractual relationships, particularly if you're a government contractor. That might define very specifically your obligation to train and what periodic might mean. I know of at least one contractor that had to scramble when they were audited and catch up on training all of their employees because they had certified that they were training them on a periodic basis to mean no less than every three years. And then lastly, the guidelines contemplate practical training. When you think of practical training, one thing that comes to mind for me is, is there enough time devoted to the training program? Far too often, we find organizations scrambling at the end of the year, trying to get training completed for their organization. Time pressure is placed both on the compliance apparatus and the employees to finish training in a very short period of time. Now, is that very practical? Another piece of the puzzle when you're talking about practicality is, does it work? When we talk about things that are practical, we're talking about things that work. How do you know your training is working? We all know of the stories or maybe unfortunately have been involved in organizations that have had issues with their training where the training runs in the background and people aren't really paying attention to it, particularly if it's online training. Is that practical? Is that effective? So how can an organization test? How can it know if its training is practical, if it's working? Well, I think there are a couple of ways to approach it. One way is through a sample or a focus group to ask a group of individuals that make up a representative sample of those that you're training to find out how they feel about the training sort of what their general impression might be, and then also to test their knowledge about the subjects that you trained on. And some organizations are taking a broader based approach about testing knowledge. So say six months or nine months after the training has occurred, conducting a knowledge survey, asking specific questions about the content of that training 
to a broader sample of employees and others that have been trained to find out their retention. I think that if you pay close attention to consistency and what's being communicated, and if you do it on a periodic, reasonable basis, following up with testing to determine if it's practical and if it's working, you're going to be much more involved in the nuts and bolts with what's going on with the training program, and you're going to have a much better idea if it's effective under the guideline standards. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot today is keep your training effective, periodic, and practical. Periodic doesn't mean once and done. It means periodic. And practical means testing to ensure that the program is working. And finally, use consistent and interesting training to ensure effectiveness. Today, we have three questions with David Searle. David is the Chief Compliance Officer and Associate General Counsel for Bristow Group. In that role, he is responsible for overseeing Bristow Group's compliance with laws in the jurisdictions in which it operates, including laws related to export controls, anti-corruption, and fair competition. David's role also includes investigating alleged violation of the company's code of business integrity and responding to whistleblower allegations. He reports to the Chairman of the Governance and Nominating Committee of the Board of Directors and the Chief Legal Officer. Prior to joining Bristow Group in 2014, David served as an in-house compliance lawyer with two energy companies. And then prior to that, he served for four years as an assistant U.S. attorney in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Houston, where he prosecuted corporate fraud and international money laundering cases. He was a member of the Organized Crime Strike Force and received multiple awards from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security for convictions obtained against human traffickers. He began his career as a trial lawyer with the commercial litigation and appellate section of Baker Botts after serving as a law clerk to the Honorable Jerry E. Smith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He received his law degree with honors from Duke University Law School of Law and holds an undergraduate degree in economics from Stanford University. Welcome, David. Thanks, Eric. Good to be with you. Can you talk about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? Well, well, sure, Eric. I, I certainly didn't set out to be a chief compliance officer or even an in-house lawyer. As you mentioned, I started my career actually as a litigator after clerking for a federal judge. I went to a large law firm for five years and was in the trial and appellate sections there. Being there for five years, I think I gained a lot of good experience that's served me well. I mean, I certainly learned how to work up a case, both large cases and small cases. You know, anything from complex securities matters to other commercial type disputes. I was fortunate when I was at Baker Botts, we had a small case training docket that was used for young associates that I was a member of where we defended uh, a large utility company in Houston on all kinds of cases, everything from small car wrecks to easement disputes. And that allowed me to get into court quite a bit as a, as a young lawyer. After several years, though, of being at the firm, both my parents had been public servants. I moved on to the U.S. Attorney's Office where I was a prosecutor aligned in AUSA for four years. And there, again, I continued to have the ability to try a lot of cases, had arguments in the Fifth Circuit. I really was going down a career path of being a litigator. And being an assistant U.S. attorney, I had the ability to learn how the government thinks about things. When a subpoena is issued, what is the government looking for? What are they expecting? What irritates them? How to conduct an investigation? A lot of the nuts and bolts skills that I use now as an in-house lawyer. Interestingly, despite all that experience as a litigator, I decided or found out after 10 years I really actually didn't like being a litigator. And that's when I went in-house. 
And I've been at Baker Hughes, another energy company, and then now here at Bristow Group. And I've been an in-house career compliance professional now for about four years. At Baker Hughes, I spent all of my time on conducting anti-corruption audits, about half the time on those and half the time's investigations. The audits we would do, we had a team of both lawyers and forensic accountants where we would go around the world and audit Baker Hughes's own business units and also our third-party agents. It really helped me learn the building blocks of compliance at a ground level. Baker Hughes is a very large company. It has two prior FCPA enforcement actions against it, a very large compliance apparatus, first-in-its-class type program built out. It was a great place to learn compliance and a great place to transition from being on a career litigator path to to in-house. In my current role, Bristow Group is a much smaller company. We have 5,000 employees. Our compliance team consists of six lawyers, only four of which dotted line into me. They're actually operations lawyers who wear a second hat as compliance managers. And then we have a full-time trade compliance lawyer and then myself. It's a smaller team. And as such, I think the benefit is we get to see a lot more parts of, of the business. And that's what I've really enjoyed about being here. It's interesting, you know, talking about how I got into compliance. As I said, I didn't really set out to do it. I think the profession right now is still developing to the extent that there is no one career path to get here. But but I do think, I think I'm a more effective compliance professional having private practice, government, and now, of course, in-house experience. I think it's helped me, helped my career round out. And, you know, I continue while being in-house to look for ways to sort of expand my in-house, you know, knowledge coming from, having come from a litigation background. Yeah, there's there's no one way to get here, that's for sure. <laughs> that um, is true, yeah. Now, if you could go back in time when you were still, uh, when you were just leaving litigation and you were getting ready to get into the compliance space and tell your younger self one thing before you assumed an internal role, what would that one piece of advice be? Well, sure. I, I The big difference between being at a large law firm or being a government lawyer and being in-house is when you're in-house and you know what I wish I knew then, and I'm learning all the time now is the value proposition for what you do is so important. When you're at a large law firm or your government lawyer, you never have to explain to a client why you're valuable. Most of your clients at a large law firm or large companies, they're involved in litigation. They have their expectations. They know how things work. When you're in the government, your client is the people of the United States. You can't really just reach out and, and talk to them individually. But in-house, it's completely different. I mean, I'm dealing with business people all day. And being in compliance, I really have to sell my my value. I have to provide a value proposition. I mean, sure, they know that our company doesn't want to pay fines and penalties. They know that if we're a more compliance-focused company, morale will be better. But the value proposition, knowing how to sell yourself, sell what you're doing, how compliance can help the company is so important. And it's not a skill that you learn innately when you're a litigator. Part of the reason I didn't like being a litigator, I'm not an adversarial or combative person by nature, but I am a person who enjoys working up cases and details of them. But really, I think, you know, again, being able to find ways to help the business and being able to explain yourself. One thing here at Bristow that our compliance team is heavily involved in is obtaining ITAR clearance 
for the movement of our search and rescue aircraft, which are equipped with defense articles, many of them, getting permission from the State Department, uh, ITAR clearance to move them. Our business, we can't move helicopters to service our clients unless compliance first obtains ITAR clearance. So we're naturally embedded in the business units in that sense. And that's very helpful. We're not just the Department of No. Uh, we're the Department of Yes, because the business can't move without us. We had another example recently where I, I pulled all of our stats for gifts and hospitality, both giving and receiving, for the past five fiscal years. And obviously, I set off on that exercise for compliance reasons. We want to track those types of expenditures and what our employees are receiving. But once we looked at the, the numbers, it was very the numbers were very helpful for our commercial team because they could see trends in what, what parts of business development, what, what parts of our operations around the world were doing a good job engaging with third parties and which weren't. Mm-hmm. So I think that value proposition, again, finding out how compliance can be a partner with the business and not just telling the business no all the time mm-hmm. is so important. You can quickly become irrelevant as a, as a compliance professional, as everyone knows, if you always take the most restrictive approach. Yeah. The other term I've used before, I've used before and I've heard before is business, making the business case, which is a positive case as to what being compliant means rather than just always everybody's going to jail and the company's going to be fined millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. Well, the people do listen when you say that, but uh, not always yeah. the best hack. Yeah. You need, you need both sides of the argument, I think, to, to, to really convince uh, the majority of, of the business operations folks. Um, yeah. If you could peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball for a minute and uh, talk to us about the one or two trends in compliance and ethics that you think will be important over the next few years. We'd like to hear that. Sure. One of the areas I think that will continue to develop, I think the role and influence of chief compliance officers will continue to increase over the next several years. We're getting to a point where almost all large companies have been through some form of large enforcement action, whether it's FCPA, financial compliance, environmental, you know, what have you, depending upon the industry. And companies are continually subject to newer regulations, regulations that are touching on a broader array of areas. And having someone in the chief compliance officer's seat who has influence within the organization, has real influence, has real power and say with senior management, that's only, the need for that is only going to continue to increase. We're seeing more chief compliance officers now who are reporting into the board of directors in order to provide a layer of independence, whether that's the audit committee, the GovNom committee, or the board, the broader board itself. Uh, chief compliance officers were reporting to the CEO, creating independence even between the general counsel's office. And DOJ, uh, I think, is taking the position increasingly that part of having an effective compliance program under the sentencing guidelines, under the factors in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, is having a truly independent, effective, and influential chief compliance officer. I've, I've heard through the grapevine that the new DOJ Compliance Council, Hui Chen, when she's met with companies, one of the first questions she asks, or series of questions, is designed around trying to understand how much the company values their chief compliance officer and how much influence that person has been given and whether he or she is has the resources that they need in order to run an effective compliance program and whether the business is is listening to what he or she says. I, I guess the other trend I see 
over the next few years, I think this will be over the next several decades, is there's going to be more and more expectation on companies generally to self-police and self-report violations, along with the onslaught of regulations that crosses all different disciplines. We have governments that are under austerity measures and have decreasing resources to enforce not only the existing regulations that there are, but the newer regulations that are being uh, passed all the time. And things like the FCPA pilot program that's that, that has recently come out has shown an increasing preference for uh, the Department of Justice to encourage companies to self-report their violations. A pessimist may say it's simply low-hanging fruit and it makes it easier for the regulators to put cases together or to have cases tied up in a bow and presented to them rather than having to investigate them <laughs> themselves. But, you know, I, I think it's just a matter of supply and demand and limited resources by the government that they're going to continue to have to encourage self-policing and self-reporting. It's been this way, of course, in the export enforcement area for years. Uh, Sometimes you see much more draconian enforcement actions, the ones that are actually investigated and brought, but self-disclosures often in the export area result in no fines or penalties, I think for that reason, because BIS and the State Department, DTDC, have recognized the benefits of promoting self-disclosure. We may even see a new realm where governments are looking to the private sector, to NGOs, and to the market to incentivize companies to behave properly. Uh, We recently published our UK Modern Slavery Act. Bristow is by heritage a UK company. And it it struck me as we were putting our statement together that the UK Modern Slavery Act has no, at at least at this point, requirements as far as what companies shall and shall not do, both in their own operations and their supply chain. Rather, they simply have to put this statement together and publish it on their website for the whole world to see where they describe what steps they have taken to eradicate human trafficking and slavery. I think that approach will continue in other areas, and we may see corporate social responsibility continuing to unfold unfold, uh, in that type of manner. Yeah, I think we're, we're headed into interesting times over the next few years. Certainly. Well, David... I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us and answering our three questions. Sure, Eric. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.